0: Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asty and welcome to the inaugural episode of I'm Curious. Today's guest is David Garlock and he has a compelling story to tell. I'm going to give a trigger warning because when David was a child, he was sexually abused by an older man for many years. He and his brother faced this sexual and physical abuse for years until David was 19 and his brother was 22. And they felt like the only way out, the only light at the tunnel, was to kill their abuser. And so they did. This episode is the story that stemmed from that moment. And to be clear, both this episode and who David is is so much more than that one moment. Uh, when he was 19, when he decided to take the life of his abuser. David now is a public speaker and criminal justice reform advocate. He was the progr- program director at Lancaster County's New Person Ministries, which is a reentry program specifically or, or uh, mainly for men convicted of sex offenses. David is a husband and a soon-to-be father, and I can say personally that he is very generous giving of his spirit, his time, his energy, here to just share and help others, um, and that's why he's choosing to share his story. David and I first met about two years ago via Twitter. I was interested in his work, and so at the time he sent me a video of a talk he had just given at Eastern University, which is his alma mater. And he started that talk by asking the audience a question. So he's speaking to these college students, and he asks them how many of you in this audience have been, who have, know someone who has been incarcerated, whether it's a friend, a relative, an associate. And he said about 40% of the people in the audience raised their hands. And usually when he goes to speak at at colleges and other places, he says he gets about 50-75% to of people in the audience to raise their hand and say they know someone who has been incarcerated. But then he went on to say that there was one place where he has spoken at that time where no one raised their hand. And he said it was Bucknell University. And he said maybe it's because where they're living. He said it's, um, I'm quoting him, outside this fear of incarceration. And I think he was speaking to a level of privilege. So incarceration today is massive, meaning the rate at which we incarcerate is so much higher than it was um, in the 1970s. We've just ballooned in our prison population since then. We are, the United States, uh, about 4% of the world's population, but we house or cage 25% of its prisoners, so a quarter of its prisoners. So I wanted to begin with David by asking just about that before we jumped into his story to see if he could speak to that for a moment, the grand scale at which we're incarcerating people in this country and perhaps the way that it's not affecting people equally across economic and racial lines. So with that, I'm going to just jump in, beginning with David's thoughts on mass incarceration and the fundamental inequality of it.
1: I mean, one thing we can definitely start off with is a a quote from Bryan Stevenson. And he says, the criminal justice system treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. And that's, that's a good place to start because if you look at people that are incarcerated, you really don't see a lot of rich people in prison. And that's the case because they were able to pay for good lawyers. They were able to get out on bond. And so sometimes, out on bond, somebody's case could go on for years. So I've seen some people whose case went on for six, seven years before they pled out. And when they were able to plead out then, they were able to just get a suspended sentence where they didn't have to spend any time in prison. They just spent however much time on probation. Um, Then we look at the broken windows theory that says, wherever broken windows are there's going to be more crime and so if there's more crime there we have to spend more money policing those areas and if you look in, in if you look at places of affluence they don't have broken windows in their houses they don't have trash around their their yards or in their neighborhood. So the police aren't going to worry about that. They're not going to go in there. They're not going to police that area. But in your inner city communities, that's where they're policing. So the same type of drug use and um, drug sales are going on in these affluent residents and places but the police aren't there because they don't feel like that's an area where they need to police so that's a key example and key reason why you have so many poor individuals you have so many individuals that are black and brown skin that are incarcerated
0: yeah I think that's um so I think that's the thing when I- I looked at prison as a child. It was what I saw on like, you know, law and order on on the news. I was in one of those places that was outside of the fear of incarceration. So I didn't even, I didn't even know someone who had gone to prison. So if you would have asked at probably my high school or um, like I would have not been able to raise my hand either. And I imagine most people wouldn't have either. Um, And yet when I started hearing the statistics, I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. It was so overwhelming. Um, which was slightly embarrassing for me to be like, oh my gosh, I had no idea this was a crisis and that I was sort of um, in my own little bubble. So I'm just jumping in here for a moment. When I was growing up and let's say the school bus would take me to school, I wouldn't pass a local jail or prison. Um, My parents didn't drive past a jail or prison on their way to work. No one I knew had, had been incarcerated. And so to me, people in prisons were others. I didn't have to think about them. I didn't have to imagine that it was... Um, important or that this really mattered or even really look at what's happening uh, inside prisons, which was so well hidden away from me, which means that I lived one type of childhood that was different than the way David was living. And this is the reason I wanted to start this podcast because I was curious. I I wanted to learn from other people based on their lives and, and perhaps bridge a gap between experiences And um, by hearing about someone's story who at first may seem so different from me, start to connect to humanity, to tell these compelling human stories. This brought me back to David's childhood and wanting to understand what it was like for him to grow up. David had said that he grew up, and I'm quoting him, in a dysfunctional family. He said that his dad had tried to kill his mom several times because he was an alcoholic, and that his siblings were kicked out of his house many times. And so I wanted to know because he had mentioned that at 11 years old he meets a man who would change the course of his life, and I wanted to know if at 11 years old was that was when he was kicked out or what happened then that changed the course of his life.
1: So I wasn't kicked out when I was 11. My brother would, had been kicked uh, was kicked out when I was 10. And he was in a receiving home in Washington. Now, the individual who began sexually molesting and physically abusing my brother and me had just gotten out of prison and had moved to Washington, befriended the person running the home, started molesting my brother and then forced him out of the home. Mm -hmm. And so when I turned 11, that's when the sexual abuse began with me. And so it was January 1st, 1991. I went over because my mom and stepdad had been brought up from California by the man that abused my brother and me. And the only reason that he brought them up uh, from California is so he could have access to me. And so the first time that I had seen my mom in two years was when the abuse began with me. And it, it was something that I didn't understand what was going on. And I mean, we were playing hide and go seek, and I we were hiding in the basement. And so I went down as this carefree eleven-year-old and just having fun, thinking that you know hide and seek is something you're supposed to do. But then that's when the abuse began with me, and that moment, you know, I I was changed. You know, my innocence was taken from me, and I mean, during the whole abuse, I felt like I had to wear different masks. And that's something that I felt the only way I could survive was by being whatever group I was around wanting me to be. So around the folks from church, I was one person. Around my family, I was another. Around the the people I played sports with, I was another. So I had like five or six different masks that I constantly rotated through. And that's why I I think I have a a real passion for acting because I had to do it for so long. So it was definitely uh, that feeling of helplessness, you know, and that I had no hope. There was the thought process that this person after he started abusing us the first time, he had told me that if I ever told anybody that he would kill my parents, he would kill Mm. my brother, kill my sister and kill me. So I I have this constant fear that he's actually going to take our life. And so I'm just living every day with this fear where I wanted to tell somebody, but I knew that if I did, something bad was going to happen to us. Um, And then it was just the, the whole process of, not knowing if I did tell somebody, would they believe me? Because you have to realize when this was happening, this started in 1991 and Mm. and this was sexual abuse, especially child sexual abuse happened, but it was the white elephant in the room. It's not where it was as prevalent now and people are more understanding and are aware of things. This was back when it was something that happened, but it wasn't talked about. It was the the thing that no one discussed and so I mean even when we were arrested it wasn't as prevalent and so Mm -hmm. I think that's one reason we received the sentence that we did because Mm -hmm. it wasn't something that people looked at as far as mitigating circumstances and really the impact that child sexual abuse has on the person that has endured it and the trauma that the individual goes through.
0: Yeah. I, again, in that talk that I, I listened to <laughs> now a second time um, that you gave at Eastern University, you talked about feeling like you were living aimless, like you had no purpose, that you were just trying to understand and be like, cope through the situation and were worried for your, your own safety and your brother's safety. Um, and so can you, and you don't have to go into detail, but can you just Mention what happened when you were 19 and a half, what you and your brother chose to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it had been a night that we had been drinking and we made an irrational decision. We felt like the only way out of the situation is to take the offender's life, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it came to this because of the, the sexual abuse, how bad it was getting but also there was a lot of physical abuse too and this individual had actually tried to kill us a, a couple of different times you know and mm. we knew that he was capable of taking our life and so it was a thought process where it was either him or us you know and it was the that thought process you know survival of the fittest you know and this was the first time we had ever come together because the offender had tried to, to push us apart, you know, where we would never come together. And this was the, the first time in years where we came together. And it, it was a decision that we made, you know. And I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I wish we couldn't go back and change it because I thought that this act was gonna cause us to be free. But what I realized is that the, we were in a prison of the sexual abuse and the physical abuse. And we thought that the murder was going to allow us to be free, but we went from one prison to another prison because Mm. for the four months that it took them to find the body, I was in this prison, this mental prison and this emotional prison with the thought that I had taken somebody's life. I didn't know how to get free of that thought and get free of it. So that whole four month period was just full of drugs and alcohol and just reckless, aimless living. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't have a purpose. I was just existing.
0: Yeah, and I think what's crazy to me about that is I know you were technically legally an adult, 19 years old, but you're still at 19, like you're still a baby, you're still a child. So you can't even think Clearly, I think, to begin with, just as any 19-year-old, and then you're in this, like you said, this crazy prison of abuse. Um, Yeah, I I can't even imagine putting myself in that, like, you know, having to live through what you lived through. Um, So then there you are, you're 20 years old, you're being, uh, you know, booked on a murder charge. Can you talk about when you were finally arrested, uh, what happened that weekend? Because I know there was something that shifted in terms of your relationship with God that weekend.
1: So I was actually arrested October 29th, 1999 at 9 p.m. I was at work. I was getting ready to get off work an hour later, you know, but the detectives came in and asked me to go to the station for questioning. So I went to this station. Um, some conversation came up and it finally went to the offender and, um, I was stating facts that he had left. But finally, I partially confessed to the crime that night. And so here I am, 20 years old. I turned 20, 24 days previously. Wow! So my life is supposed to be beginning. But here it is. I'm being booked in on a murder charge. And I didn't know then. If I was going to be facing the death penalty or life without, and that's what I was thinking, especially being in the Bible belt where they are real rigid as far as giving everybody the death penalty. So the first weekend, I'm just crying myself to sleep. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was just so fearful, so worried. But on November 1st, 1999, I was taken back for more questioning. I was sat in an interrogation room and I was in this room for seven hours. And so if you're in a room for seven hours, you have a lot of time to think. So I was thinking about the abuse, I was thinking about the murder, I was thinking about everything that transpired and I finally called the detective, Detective Lyle in and confessed to the crime and they videotaped it and he handcuffed me, took me down to his cop car, set me in the front seat, we were headed back to the county jail and I turned to him and I'm like, hey, am I going to get the death penalty or if I'm, am I going to get life without parole? He turns to me, he's like, do you believe in God? I'm thinking man I'm not studying God right now I'm going to have enough time to seek God and et cetera, you know <laughs> but as I asked you know he was he was persistent you know he kept asking me and finally I said yes I believe in God he's like you need to seek him now mm-hmm. and so when I got back to the county jail I asked for a bible and they gave me a little new testament bible and I mean I grew up in the church so I knew what to say how to say and so most people would go to Romans or John or Matthew I went to Revelations and I came to Revelations 320 that says behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone opens the door and allows me to come in I will come in and sup with him and he with me and it was right then that I cried out to God and I, I told him I don't know what's going to happen but I know that I need you and just instantaneously this peace and joy came over me. And here I am in my little booking cell, which was a six by nine cell. And I'm just praising God. I'm worshiping. I'm singing these songs that I sang in youth group and all the fear and doubt and everything left. And I knew that I was going to be okay. Mm.
0: So yeah, you and your brother end up getting uh, sentenced to 25 years. Um, And I feel like, like you said, sort of something sort of shifted there so that you started realizing now that you're not alone because God is with you, um, that you can make the most uh, that you can of this prison term. And this is not to like take that lightly or act like prison is cushy or like, oh, like everything was great then. Um, But I I know you started taking advantage of some opportunities that were offered in prison. Uh, Can you mention some of the things that you did with your time?
1: Yeah, so I always explain it like this. You know, there there's two types of individuals who are incarcerated. You have the person that does the time, and you have the person that allows the time to do them. So the person that allows the time to do them is the person that gets involved with the drugs, the alcohol, the gambling, just prison life. You know, they're focused on what everyone else is doing and really not focused on themselves. But the person that does the time is the individual who looks at the education opportunities, who looks at the behavior modification programs, who looks at the different classes that are offered in chapel to better themselves and to improve themselves. And so that was my mentality. I said, okay, I have a 25 year sentence. If I have to do all 25 years, I want to be a different David Garlock than when I was first arrested. So starting in the County jail, I was able to get my GED. Um, I went through a behavior modification program, which is really where I was challenged to look as far as what happened to me, as far as a, the sexual, the, the child's sexual abuse, as far as the trauma. And it's really there when I was reading these self-help books that I came to the realization that I was blaming myself for the abuse. And I was able to forgive myself. And that's really changed the whole trajectory of my life because. Being able to forgive myself, I was able to truly forgive others. I was able to forgive the the offender that did this harm to us. And then I continued my education. I was able to get a drafting trade. through the theology, uh, through the chapel at Easterland Correctional Facility, they they offered a theology class. So Mm -hmm. I was able to get a master's of theology through an accredited school. But my whole mindset was, I'm not, I'm not worried about certificates. I just am diving into this education, diving into all these opportunities to continue to just better myself and improve myself because I wanted to to, to be able to get out and say the person I was is not who I am today. And I mean, one thing I always tell folks is my past does not define me. What I do today, what I do tomorrow, that's what defines me.
0: Yeah, and you, you bring up a good point um, that you had to confront your own abuse and you had to forgive yourself and, and later we'll get into forgi- forgiving others. But did you notice around you or maybe in the work that you're, you've done since that, At least what I found in connecting to a lot of people who are in prison is that so many of them experience trauma or violence or abuse as children, um, and before they end up in prison.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the thing that's really sad about the the criminal legal system. I don't call it the criminal justice system because Mm -hmm. there's really no justice about it, you know. So in the criminal legal system, they don't look at mitigating circumstances. They don't look at what caused somebody to commit a certain crime, you know, because there's so much trauma. I mean, you could look at, women that are incarcerated. I mean, mm-hmm. women's incarceration rate has it's like seven hundred and forty percent, I believe, the last that I saw in the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. And ninety percent of those women have been abused sexually or physically or or both, you know, but that situation isn't being looked at. I mean, you have stories of Centoya Brown Long, mm-hmm. um, you have stories of this young lady, Alexis, in Minnesota, who was sexually abused. Mm. Um, And and that's the thing. These stories aren't being looked at holistically. They're just looking at the offense that was committed, charging them, but they're not focusing on the mitigating circumstances that led up to it. I mean... And that's what we have to realize, you know, we can't just look at the crime. We have to look at why a crime was committed. And there's a lot of work being done right now to to get relief for individuals who have been, especially sexually abused and mm-hmm. have taken the life of the abuser. Because yes, there was a murder that took place, but they were pushed to that. And a lot of times mm-hmm. it was kind of like my brother in my situation, it was either them or us, and so that's how we have to look at things.
0: Yeah, and I, I also think about the like, what are the social supports or other things that could be put in place? Like, we're, like you said, we're dealing with what we're calling a justice system, but it's almost like after the fact. What could we do in place in order to prevent these things from happening in the first place? I don't know if you want to touch on that at all.
1: I mean, really, my my thought process is we need to take a lot of the money that is being funneled into prisons we need to decarcerate i mean mm-hmm. over half the people that are incarcerated don't need to be incarcerated mm-hmm. if somebody served over 20 years the likelihood that they're actually going to go out and offend is like five percent so we need to release those i i i believe all sentences should be capped at 20 years get away with life without parole sentences get rid of the death penalty mm-hmm. and we take that money that is going to be saved by not having these individuals locked up for their whole life and pour into the communities, pour into social workers where we can work with these individuals, you know, because everybody knows about or has heard about the school to prison pipeline, Mm -hmm. but there's other pipelines that people talk about, but there is that trauma to prison pipeline because over 50% of people who are incarcerated had different type of trauma. Um, th- there's a big push right now for ACEs, which is the study of adverse childhood experiences, you know, and when individuals in prison take these, most of them have four or more um, score on it, you know, and that's a indicator of the likelihood of them being arrested if somebody has four or more, and this is due to watching uh, family members being incarcerated, drug use, uh, loss of family members, either through divorce or death. And so, so many people who have ended up in prison have had these traumatic experiences and they haven't had an outlet. So their outlet is in drugs, their outlet is in violence, you know, and mm-hmm. that saying, hurt people, hurt people. Mm-hmm. But We have to realize, too, that helped people help people and healed people heal people.
0: So I'm jumping in here again because David made some really important points there, first about money and then about uh, the cycle of trauma. What's wild to me is that it costs so much money to uh, incarcerate a person, the average across the country To incarcerate someone for about a year is about $33,000, and it ranges from around a low of about $14,000-ish in Alabama to a high of around $69,000 in New York. And when I look at that number, I went to college in in New York, I think about that cost more than my college education, $69,000, so what else could we be providing instead of cages? Could we be providing healing opportunities, education, resources, rehabilitation for those who might be addicted to drugs or who need other sorts of supports? The other thing David mentioned was this cycle of trauma. And it's anywhere between about 70 and 95% of women in prisons today who have experienced physical violence by an intimate partner. So in other words, so many of the women who are incarcerated first experienced abuse and trauma of their own. And again, that cycle led them to prison in many ways. But bringing us back from this tangent, what I wanted to get back to in my conversation with David was he had mentioned sort of getting rid of um, life without parole or the death penalty, allowing people not to spend the entirety of their lives in prison. And I wanted to ask him about one particular experience he had He had gotten his GED tutor. He had taken advantage of courses in theology while he was in prison. But in the last few years while he was incarcerated, he did something uh, special. He worked in the hospice unit within his prison. And I wanted to know if he can tell me what that experience was like. To bring it back to, as you had mentioned, how like getting rid of life uh, without parole and having people in prison for their whole lives. And I believe you had also, while you were in prison towards the end you had worked in the hospice unit uh, in your prison and I'm curious if you can talk about that experience how I can only imagine how lonely and isolating it must be for people who are facing their final moments in prison knowing they're never going to get out
1: yeah doing the hospice work and working in the infirmary was probably some of the hardest time that I served Mm -hmm. but also some of the most beneficial Um, it was the hardest because I'd spend hours every day with a person who had anywhere from days to a couple months before they were gonna die. And when you befriend somebody and you know that they're gonna die, it's it's hard. It takes a toll on you. Mm -hmm. And it was some of the most beneficial because of the impact that my time with him meant. So there was this one guy, his name was Mr. Greathouse. Mm -hmm. He was probably about 60 years old, weighed 90 pounds wet. Mm -hmm. He, He had dentures, but he never wore them. And he was in a cell, you know, and there was windows. And whenever I'd walk into the area where he could see me, like once he saw my, the, the, my forehead. He got this big old smile on his face Mm -hmm. because he's like, David's here to spend time with me. And that always touched my heart because it's like, this guy is dying. But these two to four to eight hours I'm going to spend with him are things that he's cherishing and that he's looking forward to now. And yes, it's difficult because when we think about hospice work out here, we think about family members are with the individual 24-7 at times. But in prison, the family members can only come like three times a week for like a two hour period. So if we weren't doing hospice work, if I wasn't going there four to eight hours a day, Mr. Greathouse would have been alone in a cell by himself, knowing that he was dying with nobody there. So I became a surrogate family to him because I was there. I was showing him love. I was showing him grace and mercy and just allowing him to know that he wasn't alone. And that's what's so powerful about being able to be involved in that hospice work. You mentioned a a surrogate family.
0: And so I'm I'm going to jump ahead to what I think has probably become your surrogate family, which is uh, the Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson. Because um, you had started working, I think, in 2008 with Brian Stevenson. So, for uh, those who don't know, can you tell us who Brian Stevenson is um, and how he learned about your case? And I guess the other thing I'm curious, I'm adding on here. The other thing was uh, when I write to people uh, in, or speak to people who are in prison these days, a lot of them know who Brian Stevenson is. Like Brian Stevenson is legendary. They all like you know know in advance. Um, did you know at the time like who he was like? And I, we're going back a few years, but did his reputation precede him?
1: Actually, I really didn't know that much about him mm. when I was put in contact with him. So a friend of mine was a client of his and he had told him about my brother and me and then he started um, he came and visited us and wanted to help us there really wasn't much that they could do as far as appealing our sentence because how long ago it had been but they wanted to help as far as both of us with parole setting up a reentry plan etc and so I really didn't know much about him you know it was more really after I got out or mm-hmm. or the they worked with me for five years. So it was during that time, I learned more about his work. I learned more about the Equal Justice Initiative and just the impact that they have been having since 1989. And mm-hmm. I mean, when I got out um, in 2013, um, the main focus I had was on go moving from Alabama to Pennsylvania to go to school where, mm-hmm. At, at Eastern University. It's also Brian Stevens' alma mater. He went to undergrad there and he was the one that had told me about Eastern and had put me in contact with them while I was incarcerated. But when I got up to Eastern, it was like everybody knew about Brian and mm-hmm. they were like, wow, it's so amazing that he's your lawyer and you can call him. And, this, and I'm just like, he's just Brian, you know? He's, and that's one thing that's always Interesting, you know, because when you have a relationship with somebody and they're this like world renowned lawyer or something, mm. you don't view them in that way because you know them one way. You know them as somebody that's close to you, that's doing mm. this work that has helped you out. I mean, do I acknowledge everything that he's done? Absolutely. I mean, what he's done, what he continues to do is amazing. But it's still like, yeah, he's just Brian, you know, so.
0: <laughs> right, to so me, I'm like, oh my God, he's a celebrity. <laughs> he's, <laughs> my, he's my form of celebrity. But yeah, I, I understand. Um, and so when he helped you move your pearl from Alabama to Pennsylvania, and you were able to go to college, um, which is awesome. I feel like that is not necessarily, I mean, you could probably speak better at this, Uh representative of everyone's experience in the sense that I feel like there are huge barriers to entry for returning citizens with housing and with jobs and with education. Can you speak to that at all?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely so many barriers for people that are returning, you know, I mean, I've never been able to have housing in my name without somebody um, co-signing for me. Mm -hmm. And and that's what's sad, you know, because people look at me and they don't look at the jobs I've been able to have, the amount of money I've been able to save or the the life I'm living. All they do is they see that I have a felony and that I committed a murder back in 1999. Mm -hmm. Um, The same thing with jobs. When I got out, it took me two months to obtain my first job. Because when I was filling out applications, they have that box that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Mm. I had numerous on the spot interviews, you know, they loved me, they loved my character, they loved my enthusiasm, they loved how extroverted I was. But once I told them that I had a felony, it was over with, you know, the Mm. interviews, like, okay, well, we definitely appreciate you applying, but you know, we can't move forward. Mm. The first job I got, I only had for one day and two hours, and I went in, applied for the job, had the interview on the spot. They never asked anything about a felony background, even though I checked the box. The next day I come in, I'm working for about an hour and a half, and the general manager calls me out and wants to talk to me. She's like, hey, I saw that you put down that you had a felony. Can you tell me about it? And so I explained the whole situation. She was like, I'm sorry that happened to you, but we have a company policy that we can't hire anybody who has a a violent offense. So Mm -hmm. I went from this extreme high from getting my my first job the day before to this extreme low being fired because of my violent offense that I committed. Like, 14 years previous and Mm. so i the next week i was able to get a job and i went in uh, talked to the owner this guy's name is bud skinner at jubilee seafood in montgomery alabama so if you're in montgomery Mm -hmm. go go eat the food tell bud thank you for giving me my first job but i went in he's like hey you got 13 years where you don't have any work experience can you tell me why Mm-hmm. And so I explained the situation to him. I told him about the abuse. I told him about the murder. I told him what my goals and my plans were. And he was like this. He's like, because you were open and honest with me, I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to start you as a dishwasher making $9 an hour. So the first job I had, I was only making minimum, making minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So I got a $1.50 raise for being fired and getting this new job. And I was only a dishwasher for three days. I was promoted to doing the soups, salads, appetizers, and desserts because he saw my drive. He saw that passion I had and that I was willing to do whatever. And I mean, I was, I, I, he was a difficult boss. I'm talking about I'm being cursed out three times a week when I'm doing everything right. Mm -hmm. But it was just that motivation and that drive, like, okay, I have to do this, you know, whatever I have to do. If I have to say yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir, I'm going to do that. So I keep this job.
0: I think that's like another barrier to entry, the fact that you had to, of course, like tell them your whole story, which is also, I'm mean, I asking you to do the same thing today. It can be re-traumatizing really to share everything you went through. It's very personal and intimate in a way that other people don't have to immediately be with their employer. And additionally, you know, you already, you received your sentence, you served your time. And so like essentially that should be it, but it's almost like you're getting a double punishment that extends even past what the the legal system has sentenced you to. Do you know in that time, you know, it's only been about seven years, but since you've gotten out and now have there been more efforts or more progress with the, the ban the box initiative to ban the box where you have to check off if you were, you received a felony?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a big push right there. Um, there's really one area where there's a lot of success right now, is in education. So just last year, I think 2019, um, the uh, the Common App which a lot of colleges use to have people fill out the applications for for college, they took the question off their application that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor? So, I mean, them to take that off, that is a big step. There's a lot of states. I know California just recently took off the question as far as any um colleges in california they can't Mm -hmm. ask that question now so it's definitely something that is powerful it's something that needs to be done because there's a lot of times where if somebody isn't further along in their own healing in their own growth seeing that question causes so much shame Mm -hmm. It causes some people to just stop filling out the application because they feel that if they go forward, they're just going to make a fool of themselves because Mm -hmm. what college is going to accept them because of their background? I mean, when I went to Eastern University, the dean wanted to put my story in the newspaper the second week I was there. Mm -hmm. At first, I was all for it. But then the day that, that the paper came out, I was scared because here I am, I'm I'm totally open and honest with everybody. Everybody's going to know everything about the abuse, about the murder, about prison, and that I'm here trying to have this second chance and take advantage of this wonderful opportunity. And I was like, wait, how is everybody going to react to this? But it was so incredible because everybody was – there with open arms and just loved on me and accepted Mm. me for who I was not who I was in 1999 when I committed the crime and Mm. there were times where people asked me they're like hey David how did people see you at school did they like look at you as a felon or a murderer or something like that I'm like no they never did I mean that was if there was a list of things that would be the very last thing they would say and so that was something that was so powerful, because I was accepted. I didn't have to walk around campus with this label. They looked at me as a human being, not as a felon. And so that allowed me to really thrive and to just achieve everything that I had set before me, I was able to obtain all my goals and plans.
0: And I want to step forward now. So after you graduated college and you had, obviously you had gotten those, uh, um, sorry, I don't know the, after you graduated college, you had gotten, I guess, a job working with um, individuals in reentry, uh, and can, and I believe they were people who had um, committed sex offenses. Um, I don't know if there's a better way to say that. I know language is important. I don't know how you describe it.
1: Well, I mean, you can say people who have committed a sex offense or people who were convicted of a sex offense, you know, and Uh, that's that's one thing that, you know, is very important in in the the public speaking I do. I I always talk about labels because it's very important. And I mean, even in the the criminal justice reform field, it it seems like labels matter to the to everybody except this population. And so there's a lot of people, even in the criminal justice reform arena, that still want to refer to this population as sex offenders. Mm-hmm. And what if you call them a sex offender, you're saying that this is intrinsically who they are. They are somebody who's going to continue to commit a sexual offense no matter what, and that that can't change. But my experience is that they can. People who have been convicted of a sexual offense, their recidivism rate or the rate that they go back to prison is 1.5 to 5.5% for committing another sexual offense. And before I got this job, I would have thought that that percentage was so much higher. And that's something I, when I I speak in person, when I speak in universities, that's something I ask, you know, and most of the time the students believe it's 60 to 80%, you know, Mm. and so one thing I always try to do is, you know, we have to change the narrative. That's something that Brian Stevenson always talks about, that we have to change the narrative. That goes into labels. You know, we can't continue to call somebody a murderer. We can't continue to call somebody a convict or an ex-felon because you're just defining them by the worst thing that they've ever done.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you uh, helping me with that languaging there and pointing that out because it's so important. Um, and, you know, I, I would do some work with the Down syndrome community and we always talk about person first language or person centered language. So a person with Down syndrome rather than like a Downs person. But like you said, unfortunately, those labels are not often like the person first languaging is not often uh, extended to people who have been in prison. Um, going back to that that work that you've done, as someone who is a survivor of sexual abuse, how did you choose to enter that um, field and and I guess what was your own process with forgiveness
1: well actually it, it 's kind of funny it 's more like I fell into the this work. <laughs> because it was towards the end of my senior year, my wife actually found this job on Idealist. And so she Mm -hmm. sent it to me. I was actually going to meet with the uh, job specialist at Eastern later that day. So I got the the link. I looked at it. When I went in to see the job specialist, we looked at it. The executive director actually got his master's degree from Eastern University. Mm -hmm. So we're like, okay, we got a connection there. So I applied to the job and I got an email from Jordan Kaufman, who's executive director of New Person Ministries. And he said, we got your information. An hour later, he sends me another email saying, oh, my brother gave you a good recommendation. And so I was at school with his brother at Eastern. I was like, wow, okay, this is cool. (laughs) And then I was heading to see my parole officer to check in and I get a call from Jordan. It was a a initial phone interview. And so I explained my past to him. He's like, okay, the population we work with are people who were convicted of sexual offenses. Can you work with them? I'm like, yeah, I can. I mean, Mm -hmm. and so I began to explain to him the way that I'd be able to. And it's about grace. It's about forgiveness. And Mm -hmm. my thought process is this, you know, God has shown me so much grace and he's forgiven me for what I've done. How can I not show that same grace and forgiveness to the next man? And it goes into the thought process too that I don't I didn't look at these men as the offense that they committed but as the man that was sitting in front of me you know and it's the same way that I talk about A person's past doesn't define you. It's what you do today. It's what you do tomorrow. And there's a lot of times where I had to challenge them in their thinking because they would call themselves. They'd be like, yeah, I'm just a sex offender. I'm like, you're a white." They're like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, I'm like, no, you're not. You're somebody who was convicted of a sexual offense, you know? And it's like, when I said that to them, it's like this light bulb went off on their head and they're like, okay, yes, I'm not what I did. I am. This person, I am Bill, or I am Fred, and that's what was very key in the work, you know, allowing them to really realize and see who they truly are.
0: Well, we're gonna jump ahead now to your movie stardom. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to, for a moment, talk about first the book, Just Mercy. So we had talked about Brian Stevenson before, who wrote this book, and so to me again, I see like Brian is like this celebrity. Um, <laughs> Because when I read the book, so it came out in like late 2014, I think I, I must have read it shortly thereafter. Like I said, at that time in my life, I had never really thought about prison. I didn't know anyone who went to prison, um, but I was roaming my local library one day. That book caught my attention and I, I started to read. And I remember thinking about the people he described in the book um, who he was working to help get out of prison, like their humanity just rose off the page of, of his stories and I, now I think, of course, like of course, they're human beings. Of course, their humanity, you know, rose up from that. But at the time, you know, they were criminals to me. They were other. I, I had no idea. But I felt this sense of like calling from that moment. And so after I finished reading that book is when the first time I decided to write to people who are uh, incarcerated and it eventually led to. A book I wrote that helped uh, share their stories, and so for me, I always think about Brian Stevenson in that book. And I'm like, oh, like that was the beginning for me. Um, so the book was uh, not too long ago turned into a movie. And I always, like, I'm always about, like, reading the book first, <laughs> but I must say the movie did a fantastic job. You should still read the book for those who haven't, but the movie did a really fantastic job, and I found it to be compelling, and it, it had big stars. Uh, Michael B. Jordan plays Bryan Stevenson, and there was Jamie Foxx and Brie Larson, but I remember watching it all of a sudden seeing your face pop up on the screen. I was like, ah, oh, David. <laughs> so for a moment, can you uh, tell me what it was like to have... To be a movie star and have a scene
1: in that movie. I mean, it was uh, an amazing <laughs> experience. It's something I'll never forget. And mm-hmm. so, in August of 2018, um, Brian had texted me, and he's like, "Hey, I got a pretty cool opportunity for you." I was like, "Okay." He's like, "We need to talk." So Saturday morning in August, we were talking. He's like, "Hey, do you want to be in the movie?" I'm thinking, mm-hmm. "Wait, do you even have to ask somebody that?" It's like, <laughs> "Sign me up. Just send me what I need to know." Mm-hmm. So in the scene where I am it's there's four of us and all four of us are clients of Brian Stevenson and his thought process what he was telling me on the phone is there were four incarcerated people that michael b jordan as brian stevenson were going to visit and he wanted four of his clients to play those roles instead of four actors because we had the lived experience so september 5th uh, 2018 we all flew down to atlanta and we were doing the filming uh So the thing that's really interesting about it is the other three guys served time in Florida, Arkansas, and Louisiana. So I'm the only person that actually served my time in Alabama. So putting that Alabama Department of Corrections uniform on was very surreal. And I was like, wait, this is really weird that I'm actually wearing this again. But what was funny, though, is some of the uniform wasn't actually like it was in prison because they had zipper on it, which we didn't, we just had buttons on the pants and some other things. But so we actually get to the set and we're told that we don't have any scripted lines so each one of us sat in front of the camera for about 20 minutes just sharing our own story so they actually took aspects snippets of our own story and inserted them into the movie and so that's something that is very powerful too it's not like these were just lines given to us these are actual aspects of our own story in this movie
0: I feel like I have to go back and now watch that scene again with that appreciation. Um, Cause I didn't realize that at the time, that like those, that was part bits of your story. I think I was just like, so I, mean, I knew you were in the movie, but I was just like, <laughs> Oh, so excited that I <laughs> didn't take that in fully. Um, so that's really interesting uh, to have some behind the scenes insight from you. Um, so I'm, I'm going to uh, let you go in a few moments, but um, I want to know uh, what's, ahead for you I, I know you have a memoir coming out or anything else you want to share
1: i mean my wife and i were expecting our first baby yeah uh, i December knew that too 4th. i wasn't
0: sure if you were ready to share <laughs> oh so
1: guy joshua will be arriving and it's just such a, a blessing you know both my wife and i are very excited about this and just ready for him to get here and it's just really exciting, you know, and definitely I, I'm working on trying to do more public speaking and also mm-hmm. um, doing more speaking in churches, you know, because mm-hmm. I think that's something where we need to reach more people because um, as far as returning citizens, I think having a place of faith is very important. So we all know this statement that it takes a, a village to raise a child my spin on that is it takes a village to allow a returning citizen to be successful so what that means is it takes it takes the person's family it takes the the person's community it takes employers it takes support groups but more more, more importantly it takes a house of worship a house of faith where they feel comfortable they feel accepted And they don't have to walk in thinking that they're going to be judged, you know. And that's the thing that is amazing about the church I go to is we're received, we're accepted. I'm able to serve in various capacities, you know. And as somebody who's coming out of prison, that's very powerful for us because so many times we expect people to judge us because of our past. And um, you were talking about my memoir. Um, There's a couple clients of Brian Stevenson. One gentleman who was in the movie with me, Control Jackson, he his memoirs out, and then also Ian Manuel, who's in uh, the book. He's the 13-year-old the who shot the white lady in uh, the Bosch robbery. He's actually having uh, his book come out in April. So I just wanted to, to give a shout out for both Ian Manuel and Control Jackson and their books. So you can definitely check those out too.
0: Oh, that is so sweet of you and generous to share the love because there's enough for all of us. Um, so I'm going to check those out and I'm, I'm really excited to read yours when it comes out next year. Um, and this is the, the last thing. So you had talked about, you know, it takes a village, the community idea. So for anyone who is listening, um, how can they support either people who are currently incarcerated or formerly incarcerated? Do you have any final message for them?
1: I mean, there's there's a, a lot of different ways. You know, if you want to find somebody to write, there's all kinds of different pen pal organizations throughout the country that you can write. Um, definitely check in your area to see what type of organizations there are around there. I mean, FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, is a great organization to look into. Look into Equal Justice Initiative, the work that they're doing. Uh, especially out in California, there's a lot of tremendous organizations out there, you know, so just look at what's in your area. If you're on Twitter, follow people who have been formerly incarcerated, you know, listen to their stories, listen to what they're doing, and just come alongside us, you know, because that's what we need, you know, it's about building this this army of individuals who want to see reform, you know, because back in 1970s, we had the same prison population as Germany and Sweden and Norway. Right now, we have 2.3 million people incarcerated in county, state, and federal prisons, where those countries only have like 600 to 700,000. And the recidivism rates are 20%, where ours is 60 to 70%. So they're doing something, they they are doing rehabilitation, you know, and that's where we need to get, we need to get away from retribution and incapacitation and get back to retro, uh, get back to rehabilitation.
0: Mm. Well, thank you. I'm I'm so grateful that you've shared your story and this information for us today. I feel like David was such a pro as a guest, sharing his story with wisdom and knowledge and just understanding Uh, Like I said, he has this generous and giving heart um, as a human being, which I really appreciate. And he's here not just to amplify his message, but to amplify the message of his community. And that's really um, rare and special. So I encourage you, like he said, to follow people on social media, on Twitter, who maybe have lived this experience firsthand, especially and including David. You can follow David on Twitter at David Lee Garlock. So that's David Lee is L-E-E, and Garlock is G-A-R-L-O-C-K. From there, you'll get updates on his memoir, anything he's publishing, um, his speaking events, and just his insight, which is so fantastic and and worth checking into. So thank you again for joining me, David, and everyone who has been listening uh, to this first episode of I'm Curious. Stay tuned.